This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. morning. It's Friday, October the 27th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown. Coming to you on AMI-tv, I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, the news panel reassembles. Michelle McQuig, Joita Gupta, and I tackled three subjects, including... The Ontario NDP's decision to remove Sarah Jama from caucus. How does this story fit into the broader picture of underrepresented people in politics? 41 states are suing Meta for harming young people's mental health. How could you expand that lens beyond children? And eight Scotiabank branches across rural Newfoundland and Labrador are slated to close. What should the obligation be for banks to keep branches in small towns? Lots coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. As always, things kick off with the top story of the day, and it's about government policy, climate change, and your money. A couple things that get covered frequently over here. The federal government is making some adjustments to the carbon tax. Rural Canadians will have their carbon rebate doubled starting next spring. There will also be a three-year pause on carbon pricing measures applied to the deliveries of heating oil. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau explains the decision. We've heard clearly from Atlantic Canadians through our amazing Atlantic MPs that since the federal pollution price came into force this summer, replacing provincial systems, certain features of that pollution price needed to be adjusted to work for everyone. Why the focus on rural parts of the country? The Prime Minister addressed that too. Because if you live in a rural community, you don't have the same options that people who live in cities do. We get that. So this is more money in your pocket to recognize those realities even as we continue to fight climate change and build a stronger economy. Switching gears to a workforce story, Stats Canada has released some data about sick days and sick leave for employees. Emily Javesky crunches the numbers. The federal agency says that about 64% of workers reported having paid sick leave coverage in November 2022, compared to 56% in November 1995. The report says inequality in coverage appears to have narrowed between some job types, but only 17.2% of workers whose hourly wages are in the bottom 10% say they have coverage. Employees of small businesses are also less likely to report coverage. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press. Looking over at an international story, violence is escalating in the Middle East between the United States and Iran. Sagar Magani has the latest. The strikes come after a series of warnings from President Biden on down that Iran would face consequences for at least 12 drone and missile strikes on Americans in Iraq and Syria. If they continue to move against those troops, we will respond. We maintain the inherent right of defending our troops. We're going to do it 
at a time of our choosing and a manner of our choosing. The Pentagon says airstrikes hit two Iranian-linked facilities in Syria. The U.S. is stressing it was self-defense after the president said this week any retaliation would be unrelated to the Israel-Hamas war. It has nothing to do with Israel. The strikes reflect the president's determination to balance deterring future action against U.S. forces while also trying to avoid inflaming the region and provoking a wider conflict. Sagar Magani, Washington. And coming back to Canada for one more economic story, TD Economics has released a forecast about housing prices in Canada. Don Kelly takes a closer look. TD says the market's still feeling the impact of higher interest rates, which will likely push sales down by 10% and prices down 5% by the end of the first quarter of next year. Its expectation of a recovery is based on an assumption the Bank of Canada will cut its key interest rate by next spring as unemployment rises and the core inflation rate inches lower toward the bank's 2% target. TD says it'll likely take until 2025 for Canadian home sales to sustainably surpass pre-pandemic levels. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press, Toronto. Thank you very much, Don. That's your look at the news. Here come the daily polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Thursday, you were asked, how relevant is social media in your day-to-day life? 38% of you said very, 24% of you said somewhat, 38% of you said a little, and 0% of you said not at all. Of course, uh, of you said not at all. Those votes were coming in on social media. So uh, I imagine there could be some percentage of folks who would have said not at all, but they were not in a position to vote. (laughs) Although you could have gotten involved via email or the phone. So that's on you a little bit as well. You're accountable for your own actions. Over to today's daily poll. This is going to relate to a story in the third topic of the news panel. Scotiabank is closing eight branches in rural Newfoundland and Labrador What is your preferred method of banking? At the branch, over the phone, or online? If I was to power rank these three options, I would say for day-to-day operational stuff, the pure basics, online is a beautiful thing. The actual human connection of at the branch is also lovely, so that's why I'd put that at number two. Over the phone is an obligation. I know some people really like it. I don't because I'm not a huge fan of sitting on hold for 90 minutes and being told 20 times that my call is important to you. Laura Bain, I'm not going to ask you to power rank them, but what's your preferred method? So I do the majority of my banking online, um, but I did actually used to work for a large financial institution for a couple of years and (laughs) actually at the customer service center. So I was getting those people who'd been waiting on hold. Um, (laughs) But I can tell you there's a lot of people in rural and urban areas that have very diverse needs when it comes to banking. Certainly not everyone has access to the internet. Not Mm. everyone has access to a phone. And, you know, some people are newcomers and learning a new banking system or may have language barriers. And a lot of those same people may kind of not have 
vehicular access or be able to drive right, to get to right. a branch if it's not in their community. So uh, I definitely feel concerned about the people who fall through the cracks when we limit options, especially in the today's financial climate. You know, Laura, even for people who are really savvy about personal finance, it can still be very confusing. And it's also very, very important. And I think that's where warm human connection comes in place, whether that is over the phone or whether that is at the branch. Sometimes you really need someone just there. I'm not going to say holding your hand. That, that, that's, maybe, that's maybe like too um, pitying. But just someone to be there to make sure you're not doing something that's atrociously wrong with your personal finances. Because there are consequences when you make a mistake with your personal finances. Absolutely. I mean, it's one of the most important things that people have to manage in their life is their finances. And I know that was something that I always found really rewarding when I could connect with someone who'd maybe been sort of tossed around or been confused about something and I could sort of uh, Mm -hmm. reassure them. So, um, yeah, I I just sort of worry that the overlap with the demographic who needs more options is maybe the same demographic that's going to kind of be struggling more to manage their finances. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth, uh, much like Laura, I worked for a large financial institution in Canada for about a year, uh, well over a decade and a half ago. But that was something that really came up during training, the importance of treating people with respect because it's their money and it doesn't matter whether it's $5 or $5 million, it is desperately important that you treat them and their money with respect. And that's where I do really value those human connections, despite the fact that my personal preference for basic stuff is online. But anytime I'm even dabbling a toe into something a little bit more complicated, I want to work with a human. Yeah, absolutely. I also worked for a large financial institution wow. for a little uh, while. That's uh, a, a, wow. <laughs> a three-peat over here. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, just to kind of, for sure, I completely agree with everything you said. I, I like to bank online, but specifically using the my banking app, I find it cleaner than the website. Mm. It's The interface is easier with a screen reader. And I find I can also set notifications and alerts right on my phone. If something funny is happening with my account, I get those alerts. But I will say, like you and Laura, I do like to go in and ask, ask questions. Or if I have like a check to deposit and I'm it's like a US check, then I'll go in. But what I find interesting is when I go in, they'll say, do you know that you can bank online? And I'm thinking, yes, I do, but I want to talk to a human. And it's interesting because as someone who's worked at an institution like that, I I realize that's the script. That's what you're supposed to say is remind people of the options. But I just find it interesting when I'm in the bank trying to do that sort of human to human connection that I'm being sort of encouraged to go back online. And I think Mm. that that can be a little bit um, intimidating perhaps for folks who really do need that one-on-one connection in person. Well, now that I know the three of us all have a background in uh, finance, obviously the personal finance podcast with uh, Laura Elizabeth and Dave is only a matter of time away. (laughs) Guys, thank you both for your thoughts on this topic. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also get involved online via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. Or I suppose, ironically enough, you can also answer this question over the phone, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, the Ontario NDP has removed legislator Sarah Gemma from caucus. How does this story fit into the broader picture of underrepresented people in politics? Michelle McQuig, Joyda Gupta, and I... We'll share our thoughts 
in the weekly news panel. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's Friday, so that means the weekly news panel assembles for you. Let's welcome in the panelists, saying good morning to Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Hello, Joita. Hello, Dave. And good morning to Michelle. Good morning, friends. All right, lots to get to. Let's jump right in. Ontario NDP leader Merritt Stiles has removed Sarah Jama from caucus. The Ontario legislature was set to censure Jama for comments she made about Israel and Gaza. Alison Jones explains. Stiles had defended Jama after the legislator issued an apology for her initial statement, but now she says that Jama had agreed to work in good faith with no surprises, and Stiles says she was unaware that Jama was going to speak in the legislature today against the motion. Jama said that governments and institutions in Canada are trying to silence people who support Palestinians. The motion gives the speaker authority to effectively silence Jama in the legislature, calling on him not to recognize her in the House until she retracts her original statement and apologizes again. Alison Jones, The Canadian Press, Toronto. So, Joita, I'm sure we can all acknowledge this topic is a little bit dangerous. I think just the way this news story plays out sort of underlines how dangerous any conversation mm -hmm. around Israel, mm -hmm. Gaza, and the Arab-Israeli conflict, both contemporarily and historically, can be. Mm -hmm. But there is, there are some interesting conversation points here. So knowing that we're going to be a little bit cautious, what do you want to explore? Well, the, you know, the thing is, I just don't have enough expertise in the historic and political context in the Middle East to make any sort of educated opinion. I would leave that up to the experts. I'm mm. sure you have amazing producers and they'll bring on an amazing guest and they'll blow it out the water. The reason this particular story jumped out at me is because it does speak to this other issue that's sort of been simmering in Canada for quite some time. And I think it gives us an opening to talk about it. Mm. And that issue is the degree of independence that individual MPs, MPPs or MLAs have uh, from the party line. So is it, uh, because there are many systems across the world, we of course derive our system from Great Britain, where unlike here, some would argue, backbenchers get a great deal more autonomy to say what they want to say. And so I think it really speaks to what the impact would be and, and, and kind of helps us get into this bigger conversation about how much party discipline is too much. Because one of the mm. things that's really interesting is every time there's a leadership race, the candidates running for leader will say, when I get elected, I promise you that as MPs or MPPs or MLAs, I'm going to give you more freedom to take positions that are divergent from the party. And then they become leaders and lo and behold, nothing ever changes. And maybe there's a question to be asked about whether they should. Michelle, I think that's the core question. So why not start there in regards to, I guess you'd call it the party whipping and party discipline. How strict is too strict? Because this is something that comes up for politicians of all stripes, no matter where they land on the political spectrum, that notion of somebody expressing an opinion that might not quite fall into the big tent of even big tent parties. 
Sure. Yeah, no, I think I agree. That is the core question. And this case has, does raise a very interesting one. I, I don't have a, a hard answer in terms of what, you know how much is too much, I, because I really think that context matters. And, and all these things play a role in, in how much leeway I suspect a political leader is willing to give party members. Um, when you have a situation like this one that is ex exceedingly fraught, uh, that has emotions at a very high boil across the board when you have a massive loss of life uh, across both sides and, and, and just a, a deeply complex situation. Uh, someone making a statement that does quite effectively take a side is, is likely, that doesn't surprise me that a leader was going to get involved in a situation like this and, and call for some different behavior. And then when that behavior gets flouted, uh, it's not difficult to see the case that was made in order to, to take this action against Sarah Gemma in light of the, the specific context involved here. But I think in, in terms of the broader context, it, it's hard to have a hard and fast rule. And I think a lot of mm. it does come down to individual mm. circumstances. And that's what Mara Stiles was saying here, is that there was an agreement made and that agreement was subsequently breached. And those are the grounds mm. on which she's standing but by her decision. And I think that has a lot to, to do with communication style with leadership leaders agreements with individual members so those th suggest that there are some efforts to try and accommodate dissenting views in that party but certainly many people within that group don't see it that way at all mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and you get into a very just complex confluence politics is not activism and vice versa and this is where those lines get really blurry and difficult yeah. to, to to navigate i think there there is a bit of a news update to this one as well that that uh, several members of the ontario ndp as well as a bunch of signatories have hopped on a petition really uh, disagreeing with the decision that Merritt styles made here um mm. it's it this you actually don't need to look that far into Canadian political history to see where a politician weighing in on conflict in the Middle East, specifically under the scope of Israel, actually led to the downfall of a party leader. That's one of the things that got Annamie Paul out of the federal Green Party, mm -hmm. that a couple of a couple mm -hmm. of members expressed some dissenting opinions on the Israel-Palestine situation, issue, conflict, whatever you want to call it. And that ended up causing a huge schism and rift in the party. And Juita, I think that's when you start getting to how strict is too strict. Mm -hmm. It also speaks to where parties sometimes just don't necessarily want to have a stance on an issue that they yes. don't necessarily have. How can I phrase this? A, 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 a true a power of influence interest. I, I know I'm kind of, I, I, I'm picking kind of the wrong words there, mm -hmm. but the Ontario NDP doesn't really need to have a position on the Arab-Israeli conflict. Like, mm -hmm. it, 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 it's just not in their scope of, of influence and in, in, the, in the work they have to do. So, 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 so... I don't know if I agree with that. Okay, well, well are, I want to give... I think there are people on the convention floor who might disagree with that, oh, but oh, that's... Okay, okay. <laughs> and, a lot of, and a lot of constituents who would expect oh, oh, their parties okay, to okay. have uh, okay, come at me on this, guys. I don't mind. But, like, jurisdictionally speaking, a provincial I, I, party I see a, should I, I not see have what, an I, I international relations presence, yes, especially yes, especially a divisive one, Joita. Yeah, I, I, I get I get what you're trying to say, Dave. I really do. Uh, but just before we go any further, can I just say, because we completely didn't acknowledge the really interesting remark that Michelle made, which was about politics not being activism and how that's not a 
it's not a foregone conclusion for some people. In fact, Sarah Jama is a really good example of someone who, as a young, she's only 29. I mean, God, I wasn't involved in anything of significance yeah. at 29, but she's 29 years old, uh, a young, black, uh, Muslim, disabled woman, Same and she has these mm-hmm. amazing grassroots connections. So, you know, those and lines And has done a lot politics, of tremendous work. I think it needs to be said she's done a lot of Yes, has done a lot of her- tremendous work. And so those lines between politics and activism do tend to get really blurry. And I think that question about how strict is too strict uh, is a really interesting one because a lot of it comes down to our system of voting where people aren't really voting for the individual, they're voting for the party. So there is a really convincing argument to be made in favor of uh, MPs or MPPs or MLAs sticking to the party line more often than not. Why? Because then voters know exactly what they're getting. You don't want an MP or an MPP or an MLA going off and voting in a way that often runs contrary to the um, to the campaign uh, of the of the party or its uh, key ideas. Because then for voters or constituents, it's like, well, well, hang on a second. That's not what I voted for in the in the in the general election. So you've got that idea, but up against that, when you think about this question about how much is is too much uh, it is worth noting that in the uk where i i sort of drew the comparison earlier if you're a front bencher so if you're a critic then you kind of have to toe the line there's not really much you can do in terms of expressing an individual opinion but if you are a backbencher you get a lot more freedom to express different opinions and ideas and i sometimes think that that might be really worthwhile from a from a the standpoint of democratic um from the standpoint of maybe being able to to better represent the views of your constituents, even if you know you're not everybody across Canada agrees on everything all the time, mm-hmm, right? So mm-hmm. there might be some some arguments there to actually bring in a diversity of opinions and ideas. So right now in Canada, generally the belief is that perhaps we are a little too strict with uh, enforcing the party line. And it becomes especially problematic when MPs or MPPs or MLAs feel that their role is nothing more than to rubber stamp yes. the leadership position. So yeah. what does that really do for democratic process? And I think mm-hmm. if you'll allow me to say this, the equity piece becomes really important here. Because in mm-hmm. the past, the NDP is not the only party to do this, but the NDP in particular has really worked hard to diversify its rank and file and to invite people from equity seeking groups to be part of the the um of the party apparatus but if they get there and don't really get to express their individual points of views or they don't really get to have a voice or they feel that they don't get to really have a voice does does that not fly in the face of some of these uh, more recent and dare i say highly publicized recruitment efforts because no one is going to say we just want all white cis men in our party thank you very much certainly (laughs) certainly especially when you're a party that does want to label itself as more progressive that that sometimes Mm -hmm. you're going to be bringing in let's call them alternative views or Mm -hmm. like like, i I don't want to use the word radical because i don't think what sarah jama expressed was completely radical i think that perhaps in the moment it was very it, it, it hit people in a very emotional way but there are lots of progressive people who would share the same position as sarah jama that is again one of the complications that exists in any movement whether it's deeply progressive or deeply conservative there are going to be ideas that are not necessarily mainstream or centrist Mm. or maybe some of the vanilla that a lot of Canadian politicians like to express more broadly speaking. And Joita, you're right to to reference the fact that Sarah Jama pretty much represents a lot of underrepresented people 
in politics as terms of a young person of color, a person with a disability. There's a lot of things, there are a lot of underrepresented positions and people, and it's not fair to put that solely on Sarah Jama, but Michelle, when you do get people coming from underrepresented backgrounds into the political context, how does this story fit into that broader picture of unrepresented, underrepresented people in politics and maybe some of the positions that are going to come along with that? Well, I'm, I'm glad you referenced the first part in particular, because that, that's the aspect of I have found the most interesting in terms of the pushback since the decision. You talked about the, uh, Joita, well, one of you talked about the letter that's gone out in support of her, and a lot of that was grounded in her community activism. But it's definitely worth noting as well, I think, that there have been a, f a few, both past and present NDP caucus members who are also Black, who have talked about a pattern of having their voices silenced or feeling like they're being pushed mm -hmm. out and not being heard. That, I think, is, I don't think we can have that conversation without acknowledging those perspectives and listening to those perspectives, because we're not insiders. None of us on this particular panel are in a position to really talk about how uh, the words of Merritt Styles would land within the Black community. Um, but there, there has been some very specific criticism on that front, talking about you know, invoking stereotypes, usually used in association with Black women. Mm -hmm. uh, these are these are important critiques that I think need to be really be listened to and that do raise some of these broader questions that Joita was alluding to off the top. Um, and I don't know if any of us here are, are especially qualified to, to weigh in on those, the validity of them, but I do think it's important mm -hmm. that they be noted and, and discussed. Uh, in terms of diversifying views and bringing in additional views, yes, I do, that, that comes with the territory, absolutely. Um, but I do think that party discipline has a purpose and that when one enters politics, there there does come with it a certain understanding that you're going to have to be navigating a specific set of rules that are probably unfamiliar to a lot of people coming into this. Politics is a really weird world that I don't profess to understand 100% by any stretch. <laughs> uh, but I do think that by taking this on, there, there does ha have to be kind of an implicit understanding that there needs to be be the game needs to be played on both sides and and there needs to be a bit of uh willingness to not suppress your views uh but but some a compromise path does need to be found and again i think the mm -hmm. the the relevant point here was that at least according to merit styles a compromise was reached and attempted and not ultimately followed. And mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. is where, like, I think, I, I really don't think it can be stressed enough that the, the her removal from caucus did not stem from her initial comments, which That's right. did fail to, which failed to mention Israel. That's another thing. It, it, they, they just did not mention uh, what happened on October 7th, which is shocking on a number of levels and it did not acknowledge that at all but this subsequent conversation is coming about not because of that initial statement but because of subsequent actions and that's mm -hmm. where i think this conversation really yeah turns. yeah it's 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 one thing to rage against the machine it's another thing to rage against your machine and then wonder why your machine might turn its back on you um I, it's it's it, but like but i'm also like i'm i, I say that but i also acknowledge that joita at the core of this so many times political leaders leaders who lead parties are asked to are, are asked
asked to speak for members of their or to speak for members of their party or maybe dump people from caucus because their ideas mm -hmm. are too controversial. Certainly we're looking at this through the lens of an NDP story, but it mm -hmm. comes up quite often for people like Pierre Polyev to disassociate a uh, federal conservative leader to disassociate mm -hmm. himself from uh, certain radical factions, right? So it's mm -hmm. not as if it's not as if this story is unique to just one set of politicians. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes a, a leader may be decried if they don't separate themselves. So I do acknowledge mm -hmm. that when you're playing this political game, you're going to unfortunately have situations where people engage in the whataboutism. Mm -hmm. But 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 you're right. And I want to give you the last word on this one before we before we move on to something else. Just about that balance of underrepresented people potentially having more dissident views on from the status quo and mm -hmm. how and how democracy and how political parties and political leaders are supposed to handle that. Well, Dave, that's beyond my pay grade. I think it's a question that many people have struggled with. There's no denying that there is a great deal of work that still needs to be done to ensure that we do have adequate representations. I know Canada is truly lagging behind, even when, when it comes to something like gender parity. Yes. I think we're 61st yeah. in the world. So we've got a long ways to go. No one's going to give us any prizes. And I think maybe we've got to take um, the view that the way we've done things in the past need to change to accommodate the fact that we have different people in the room. But in what way and to what extent are questions that I don't really have answers for. And really, it does depend on the issue at hand, where, you know, sometimes you need a more unified stance as a party, and other times you have greater freedom to express yourself. And again, one goes back to the official NDP line on this, where they're saying Sarajama was not expelled due to her views from the caucus, but it was in fact expelled because they, she breached an agreement made with Marit Stiles. The other thing that's really interesting is uh, the question about process, because at least one uh, person in, has come out in support, uh, MPP has come out in support of Sarajama saying, well, you know, this is the first I heard about it uh, when I because they never consulted uh, caucus. And I am, of course, talking about Jill Andrew, who said, I had no idea this was happening. Uh, the last thing I'll say uh, is that it is really important to situate this controversy in the Ontario context. And I say this because I, not everybody lives in Ontario and may have lost track of the <clears throat> Greenbelt scandal, which uh, the mm -hmm. Tories have, have completely exploited the situation. And the NDP's credibility when it came to the uh, to holding the government accountable around the Greenbelt scandal, where they turned around and took a bunch of uh, pro land off the Greenbelt and, and, and handed it out to housing developers. That's a really basic summary of that whole scandal. Suddenly, the Tories have been able to use this, this controversy involving Sarajama to effectively do what Donald Trump did so well, which is distract, 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 and change the channel. So I also think that there's a little more reason why this, why so much fuel was thrown on the fire in the first place, because it's uh, because it really was set off with uh, the, with 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 Sarjama being uh, censured and in, in the legislature and the and and of course the NDP backed her on that occasion. But there was also incentive for the Tories to make an issue out of this to begin with mm -hmm. because they didn't want uh, to draw attention or continued attention to the Greenbelt scandal. Joita Michelle, thank you for this. I think we managed to keep ourselves out of trouble, although we'll see what people say at feedback at ami.ca. Coming up next, 41 states are suing Meta for harming young people's mental health. How might this lens expand beyond just children? This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown and the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown alongside Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Let's get into the next topic. South of the border, 41 states are suing Meta, aka Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, etc for harming young people's mental health the states allege that facebook and the gram are knowingly designing features that can lead to addiction the lawsuit argues that meta unlawfully misled the public about its products the federal suit also accuses meta of violating the children's online privacy protection act by collecting personal data on users under 13 without parental consent michelle this is a really interesting story i'm curious how you want to explore it yeah i I don't want to get into the legal aspects necessarily or the the, the particular legal arguments invoked here they're really complicated oh boy uh, as you mentioned there's like 41 (laughs) states involved so i'm not going to get into those weeds because i would find myself hopelessly lost within seconds but i do think it's a really interesting case and an interesting approach to try and tackle this through the courts in every circle I've ever been part of, inevitably you hear the conversation of social media sucks, it's toxic, get off it, it's it's horrible <laughs> for you, it, it, it's depressing to be on social media, etc. I mean, yes. These are, I mean, it, well, this is it. Like, is, is anyone here going to argue that they're wrong? Because I, I don't think they are. Um, but this, these are adults <laughs> grousing, right? These are adults griping about this in, in, in sort of very everyday uh, colloquial terms. Um, but... Introducing kids into the mix does add a whole other layer. And in, in mm-hmm. all seriousness, those conversations take a different turn altogether when I start speaking to my friends who are parents who are terrified of the day that their kids get on social media and all the ramifications that come with that. So I think that the, the there are a lot of aspects of the social media impact on society at large worth discussing, but with kids in particular, that's an interesting way in for those who decide to tackle it from a legal standpoint. It's certainly one that's probably going to get more buy-in in terms of legal resources and, and public interest and and, uh, and public backing, frankly, because I suspect that these are going to turn into some pretty expensive court proceedings. Mm. Um, but th- these suits like this raise a lot of interesting questions about the role social media plays in our lives collectively and specifically on kids. And I find that very interesting. It's also interesting to note that this is this particular legal action is concentrated in one country, the United States, whereas we know these are global products. So certainly, yeah, I'll be I'll be interested to see if those uh, similar sorts of cases make their way further afield, like, let's say, north to Canada. That, that's mm-hmm. been an observation that I've had for about six months now, Michelle. There have been a lot of government cases south of the border, north of the border, over in Europe that are really targeting social media and big tech. It mm-hmm. really feels like a shifting in sands. The three of us talked about it probably about a month and a half or two months ago on this panel, where it feels like governments are really starting to take notice. And, Joita, one of the reasons why I think that is, is that it's tough to form a court case without evidence. The three of us might not be lawyers, but we're well aware that it's tough to win a lo- it's tough to win a court case without evidence. And over the last ten years, there's been a bunch of academic research done, specifically in the last couple of years, about social media and youth mm-hmm. mental health. And and a lot of the evidence is starting to come into play here, data driven evidence. And mm-hmm. I think that's where this conversation really sort of can 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 find a hinge point before it expands out more broadly speaking. And for fear of being accused of quoting the Simpsons, won't somebody think of the children? The children. But, 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 but Joita, I can really see where a story like this resonates with people, whether they have kids or not. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's not the first time that a, that a story involving ch- children has had broad repercussions, whether it's about traffic safety, whether it has to do with the location of pot shops, you name it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a real cultural ethos about protecting the best interest of the child. And that's been an idea entrenched in our minds for a very long time as, and I will happily die on this particular hill, as it should be. And so in in, in a one sense, this is a, a continuation of arguments that have said that, that, that exposure to television is really bad. And I think there has been a lot of study, uh, there have been, uh, there has been a lot of research and studies that have looked at the impacts of social media that you know we've, we've coined the term internet addiction uh, and so i think it'll be very really interesting to see how those two issues come together in this particular lawsuit the desire that many jurisdictions have to reign in social media in some form or the other and uh, a desire to protect children which has been around for a really long time i think to your point and you are absolutely correct i think this entire legal process does hinge on the evidence. You said, who would ever disagree that social media is addictive? Well, I've got a couple of guesses as to who would disagree. <clears throat> Facebook. Big tech companies, perhaps? Big yeah. tech investors, companies, investors, in, yeah. investors in those companies. Instead, same. Yeah, no, all fair. Totally. Yeah. So so it'll be really interesting to see whether the evidence stands up. I mean, it, it clearly stood up to peers scrutiny in, in, in the academic world, but it'll be really interesting to see if it holds up in a court of law as well. Yeah. You know, there's also been another piece of evidence. I just want to flag this is that, that some of that was introduced by uh, Meta whistleblower. Uh, there was a yeah. woman who blew, who sounded the alarm on this a couple of years ago. It led to Meta actually scrapping plans for an Instagram platform specifically geared towards children. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there, there is in terms of evidence, there is internal and external research to mull through for the courts. Yeah. There's also journalistic evidence too. the New York Times and Washington Post both did huge exposés on this as well, leaning on some of that academic, some of that academic research. So, the, like the, the evidence, the evidence to discuss is out there. But Michelle, you and I clearly have been spending too much time together, even though we haven't hung out in person <laughs> since the pandemic started, or maybe a couple times since the pandemic started. Because yes, one, things keep getting in the way of our plans. I know, I know. Anyway. But what, but one of one of the things that I always bang the table about in this conversation is that the lens about the heart of spaces like social media or any kind of uh, vice or, or or whatever you want to call it needs to, the lens needs to be expanded beyond children because to my mind there are a lot of adults that are being negatively impacted by social media companies as well who are part of the maybe uh, the 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 misrepresentation of the platform and the buy-in and maybe you can say hey an adult can make their own decisions Mm -hmm. but they were also dealing with the reality of perhaps a lack of information of what they precisely knew they were signing up for when they started using these platforms and i know know that's very speculative but how might the lens expand in this conversation beyond children yeah i I have to admit maybe Maybe we don't need to reschedule those plans because I had a similar thought when I first read this story. That's interesting that they're concentrating just on children when there are all kinds of ramifications for adults that get discussed. You talked about one aspect. Another one that I would flag is something that's in in the case of Facebook specifically. There are many adults who signed up for one product and are now dealing with one that's completely different. The products have changed dramatically over the years. So what you initially signed up for is now not what you're on and not what you intended. Um, so that that's another area where people get uh, get locked in to a degree, I think. But 
there, there, for all the research you talked about youth, there is equal amounts of research of detrimental effects on adults. And you're, the, the companies have tried to address some of the critiques surrounding youth by implementing controls like parental controls and warnings to get off the screen. Uh, you know, one can question how effective those measures are going to be, but there are things that can be put into place targeting the youth population that won't mm. work for adults. It would not be appropriate for adults. Mm. So in many respects, I think adults are navigating this with fewer safeguards. Um, and the, the research is mounting there as well. And certainly the pandemic exacerbated all kinds of things. And social media uh, has been blamed for the breakdown of all kinds of things from individual mental health to uh, discourse and democracy. Genocide. So there, like social media has been blamed for genocide. Yeah. So like there's no end of, of ramifications for older populations that I think will have to be assessed at some point. I don't know how, though. Uh, the, the thing with the kids angle is that it does give it a much more specific and engaging hook on which to hang a legal argument. And yeah. I don't know if that's going to work in, in an adult context. I, I should probably do more than just allude to genocide. I should at least back that up with a little bit of the fact on that one. Uh, it was the genocide in Myanmar where uh, where social media was put right in the crosshairs as a way of organizing some uh, genocidal efforts. So I, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole. Uh, but but uh, if I was going to allude to it, I might as well actually full-blown uh, make the reference. Uh, Joita Gupta, you were right mm -hmm. to identify that at, at the core things about children are going to resonate, and rightfully so, because children mm -hmm. are the future, and they're vulnerable, and they're super important. But mm -hmm. if you were to broaden the lens, how would you apply the lens to the conversation beyond just the child or children or young people focus? Well, look, I, I want to pick up on where Michelle left off, which is to say that we can all agree that there are ramifications for adults that are serious, and I'm not going to regurgitate them because I think you've both done an excellent job. But Michelle makes a really cogent point and a convincing point that it is very hard to meet legal tests based on the perception that adults are fundamentally different from kids, right? Well, if you're an adult and you're old enough to vote, you're old enough to own property, you're old enough to have sex and get married, then surely you're old enough to monitor your own social media use. So I'm not saying that there aren't ramifications. That's not my point. My point is it'll be much harder to win a legal case on that basis. Mm -hmm. The other thing mm -hmm. that I'm going to say about the distinction between kids and adults is uh, and again, with the caveat that I'm not, I don't have a background in childhood development, but I believe a lot of the research actually points and, and we know that the brains of children are constantly developing for the first, mm -hmm. you know, 12, 13, 14 years of life. Yeah, and so yeah. early exposure to social media means that it is fundamentally changing the chemistry of their brains in ways that I think, you know, for I grew up in the late 80s and the 90s. I don't know, I'm not asking you guys to age yourselves, uh, but I don't think because right. I, I think our, our I think <laughs> yeah. our minds maybe work in a very different way because we didn't have and over we didn't we weren't overexposed to social media so i think there are harms to children uh that maybe aren't as well understood that don't actually exist for adults well no it was nintendo and sega genesis that broke my brain that's 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 how i ended up the, <laughs> that's how i ended up being the human that i am too much garfield nintendo and sega genesis uh michelle i i, I want to come back to you though on this on this conversation because one of the reasons why i will perpetually shift or try to zoom out and bring the adult perspective into this conversation is because I think far too often there's a sense of people in our generation or older than us who will simply say only children can be vulnerable and I and I just think like that is wrong mm -hmm. oh I mean that, that I I don't even 
have the words to refute that. It's it's a, it's absurd on its face that kind of claim. And and yeah, I think that's. I do suspect that there will be a case stemming or focusing on the adult perspective, but it might not be the sweeping class action type of situation that we're seeing here. Maybe in that case, and I'm not a lawyer, so I'm speculating here entirely, and, and this may be entirely without legal merit, so please uh, take apply salt liberally to what I'm about to say, but maybe a way in for that would involve someone launching a grounds on uh, focusing on the ways in which the the social media giants have evolved their their processes and their tech or maybe there's a particularly horrible case and you know I, I fear that that someone might be out there like that maybe a particularly mm-hmm. dire case of an individual who had their mental health destroyed mm-hmm. through social media access or mm-hmm. something but I suspect it would require a bit of a different approach than what we're seeing Certainly. in terms of this legal case um but is there are are there are there rife grounds for this kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. I just think it would require a certain amount of expertise in, in an area of law that, frankly, is still evolving. That's it's, just part of it, yeah. too, is that this is a, a very fluid landscape. These social media giants are relative newcomers to the world and the, yeah, and the corporate yeah. and political scene. And we're still trying to navigate exactly how to deal with them. And that, that I think, is why we're seeing such this spate of of court action in the past few months, both in the United States and in Europe. Well, you're right. We talked about that earlier. Uh, but part of what I find quite interesting is that we haven't seen much of that action at all here in Canada. Everyone is just playing catch up on social media right now from a regulatory point of view. And when you say new, Michelle, it, it's really worth noting that when you're talking about social media, maybe you want to go back to MySpace, right? That's the early 2000s. Maybe you <laughs> yeah, want to yeah, talk yeah. about Napster, but we're still talking about something that's, that, that's, oh that, that's, maybe, oh that's maybe 20 or 23 years old. But maybe in earnest, like really in earnest when you're talking talking about the vast presence of social media, you're really only talking about something that without a university email address, you couldn't get to Facebook to like 2007, right. 2008. That's right. right. So, so you're and really... these guys didn't evolve into the multi-billion dollar corpse they are now within the past, what, five to 10 years tops. Like these yeah. are... These are babies on the corporate scene. Uh, yeah, Facebook went public in like 2013 or 2014 as a publicly mm-hmm. traded institution. And yeah, the algorithmic expansion. It, 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 it's just one of these things where, where sometimes the regulatory framework and the research framework is just going to be behind the times. And that's at the core of tech. Move fast mm-hmm. and break stuff. Right, like that's like yeah. that's what they do. So there's always going to be a little bit of a game of catch up going on here. Uh, let let's leave it here, guys. I think that was really thoughtful, and I I'm 100% positive social media will come up as a topic on the panel in the future. But I want to make sure that coming up next, we have at least a couple of minutes to talk about eight Scotiabank branches across rural Newfoundland and Labrador are slated to close. And it begs this question, what should the obligation be for bank companies to keep branches in small towns? This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's the Friday news panel with Michelle McQuig and Joey DeGupta. One more topic to discuss with you. Eight Scotiabank branches across rural Newfoundland and Labrador are slated to close. Scotiabank confirmed branches in Deer Lake, Flowers Cove, Bonavista, 
Twillingate, Lewisport, Borgio, Grand Bank, and Whitbourne will close. The company says people in those communities will have to travel to other Scotiabank branches if they need in-person services. Bonavista Mayor John Norman says the town is trying to fight the decision. Uh, worth noting that Scotiabank is the only major bank in Bonavista. Been there for over a hundred years, the branch in Bonavista. There's only a couple of minutes left on the clock here, so I'm going to just sort of open this up a little bit because I want to make sure that either of you have the opportunity to uh, sound off on either alternatives or an accessibility angle. But, Joita, the core question that I have here is what should the obligation be for banks to keep branches in small towns, especially under the context of being such a federally regulated industry? That's right. I think there is definitely an obligation. Think yeah. about telecom companies that are required to serve uh, communities in rural areas with smaller populations for the privilege of being able to serve high density and high population areas. And the same is true for banks that wield enormous power and get a great deal of privileges from the government. So I don't think it's uh, entirely uh, too much to ask that they provide a minimum level of service to uh, to Canadians living in remote places. Now, one of the things that you could think about and you ask about alternatives is that if it is genuinely a question of cutting costs and trying to look at their bottom lines, we have five major banks in the country. Maybe they should all get together, divide up these smaller towns and provide services. Maybe you know you have BMO oh. in some places and you have Scotiabank in others. I mean, the fact that Scotiabank is closing its doors in so many places in Newfoundland is pretty ironic to me because that is where the bank got its start, but that's besides the point. So one option is to really think about maybe the five major banks getting together and dividing up uh, these smaller uh, rural communities so that we then mm. alleviate any competition and that if you don't have to cut costs because you're trying to compete with your with, with the other four banks, maybe everybody will get served by a bank. I have a number of other suggestions, but I do want to make a point that I think sometimes you get we romanticize uh, online banking. And we think it's yep. the it's the be all and end all, and it's great for everyday banking. But you need a mortgage or a car loan. Uh, you you probably want to go in person Human, to do that. You need yeah. cash. Yep. Like there are withdrawal limits on ATMs. You can't just go and withdraw ten thousand dollars from an ATM. Uh, if you ever needed foreign currency, you got to go to a bank. If you ever needed to access a safety deposit box for your yes. gold jewelry or yes. home, yep. or the deed for your yep. home, so there are very important reasons why we actually still need a physical branch. To say nothing of the obvious reasons, which is you know people with disabilities and, and seniors. My mother-in-law, I think, still has a bank book. Uh, so, you know, we know those those arguments, but the other thing that I'll say, and maybe this is... Like got to be, be quick here, Joanna. I want to make sure Michelle has a couple minutes as well. Yeah. The one last thing I'll say is that I think the bank has been a major employer for people with disabilities. So the more banks cut back, the fewer opportunities there are for people with disabilities. Yeah, that's really well put. Yeah, I wanted to mm -hmm. make sure the accessibility yeah. angle was included here too, Michelle. And I, I've got a similar idea to Joita in regards to thinking about how major banks can continue a presence in small towns. I actually wonder about maybe like a hub building where, where it's less of a footprint, but all the major banks can have a presence. Because really and truly, I, I'm not going to cry in my soup for the people at Scotiabank. The, of the major banks, they're having the toughest financial year of banks in Canada, but their profits will still be in the billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to cry in my soup too much here, but I do understand that it's a tough economic time. Things are changing a little bit. There's some turbulence, but I still at my core believe there has to be an obligation to make it at least somewhat accessible for people to get some sort of banking within a reasonable distance of their home.
Yeah. Absolutely. And I think there's, it's important, extra important to ask these questions in, in towns where you have one location and, and mm-hmm. you know, l- limiting those access. Maybe this is a time when the federal government would want to to consider some rules around those sorts of closures and, and providing that kind of access, because Joey is quite right. This is a federally regulated industry and a tightly regulated one at that. So it would be interesting to see any kind of measures on that front. I love the idea of collaboration or cooperation among the institutions, but I would also flag that maybe it would be nice if that's going to be happening in rural areas to, I don't know, maybe waive the three or $4 withdrawal fees that come along with mm-hmm. that sometimes if you're using someone else's banking services. Right, right. Because um, mm-hmm. it, it, it does get really expensive if you're banking outside of your home institution. Uh, that comes with a lot of hurdles that I think would need to be reconsidered if you have any kind of collaborative approach. Um, but I'm glad Joita raised all the arguments around maintaining a physical banking presence. Um, and, and the accessibility angle really can't be overstated. Part of it, too, is that online banking is a great solution for those who get it and for those who can use it, but it's not appropriate to all learning styles. Um, some people don't have the, the tech required to, to navigate that kind of landscape. Physical options need to, to remain available. And uh, I, I think it's not a great look on Scotiabank when you have this happening in a, in a province that has been economically disadvantaged quite a lot over the years mm-hmm. as well. So it's, it's uh, yeah. not not... Not a wonderful look on Scotiabank. Yeah, it's it's one of these things where where it's the value of in-person service when you're talking about money. And all of these folks have probably paid their monthly banking fees that have gone up and up and up. And just because there might not be as strong an economic case, there is an ethical case to be made here. Mm-hmm. And for fear of opening up, opening up a can of worms that we've explored before with only about a minute left on the clock, it is a reminder there could be alternatives. Like people have mm-hmm. talked about post offices in Canada Post being a banking hub or maybe trying to find yeah. other financial institutions and other important frontline stores that won't go away. I'm thinking about like major pharmacies or grocers. And certainly some of those companies have already started developing their own financial companies. So so there, there are other options on the table here, but I still think the present of the big five across the country, even in small towns, is really, really important. And I think we have consensus there. So that's a beautiful way to wrap up a a busy one hour (laughs) of conversation. Michelle, have a lovely weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday morning. I'll send you an email on Sunday. Sounds good. Take care, Dave. And Joita, you have yourself a lovely weekend as well. Thank you. You too. That's Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. And Joita Gupta is the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. Coming up after the break, a couple of interesting stories about safe consumption and safe supply of drugs in a couple of different regions across the country, including BC and Saskatchewan. That's coming your way in the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Friday, 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 October the 27th, 2023. Yeah, I got in my own way there, stumbling over my words. Thank goodness there's only 58 minutes left in my work week. Sort of, kind of. Coming up in the second hour of the show, fast TV services are on the rise. You might think of those as services like Pluto or Tubi. But what makes them so appealing? 
Craig David will offer up a little bit of insight. And Martin Scorsese's latest film is getting some criticism. Laura Bain chats about Killers of the Flower Moon in the Entertainment Report. I, uh, still looking forward to seeing that movie. But there is some controversy, so we'll explore it. We're not afraid of the dangerous topics on Now with Dave Brown. We're just careful when we get there. The hour begins with the regional news updates. Beginning in British Columbia, Vancouver police raided the offices of a downtown Eastside Compassion Club over allegations of drug trafficking. Inspector Phil Hurd says the Drug User Liberation Front was knowingly trafficking illegal drugs. While we support progressive drug policy and believe harm reduction strategies do reduce the number of lives lost due to drug toxicity, we are steadfast in our insistence that all strategies deployed must be fully compliant with the law. The Anyone who ignores the law or fails to obtain the required legal exemptions should expect to be the subject of enforcement action. That's a couple times this week I've stopped on people when they're taking big breaths. Apologies. The Drug User Liberation Front says on its website that its fulfillment center allows drug users to receive up to 14 grams of cocaine, heroin, or methamphetamine per week. Dolph did receive some health ministry funding. That issue came up during question period. Solicitor General Mike Farnworth addressed the concern. Honorable Speaker, as the member knows, the contract was for drug testing, and to somehow suggest that government authorized or wanted funds to go to buy illegal drugs is just straight nonsense, and they know it, Honorable Speaker. Farnworth says the contract with Delph has been cancelled. Over to the prairies, safe consumption of drugs is at issue in Saskatchewan. The government will not be funding safe consumption sites. Mental Health and Addictions Minister Tim McLeod feels the focus should be elsewhere. The focus is on recovery, and if you're using illicit and potentially lethal drugs, you're not on the path to recovery. We want to provide people with the supports that they need to be on the path to recovery. Health critic Vicky Moat thinks that focus is too narrow. My fear is that if we ignore frontline workers, if we don't listen to experts on this area, we are going to see more people dying, more people suffering um, from addiction, and, uh, and more people on the streets. And over to the Atlantic provinces, Nova Scotia has announced the initial phase of a program aimed at improving cellular phone service in areas of the province without proper coverage. Public Works, Public Works Minister Kim Masland says the $47.3 million in funding is simply the start of what will be a multi-year program. Masland says the first phase will seek innovative and cost-effective technologies for existing infrastructure and telecom companies. Phase two will look to close remaining coverage gaps with new infrastructure. That's your look at the regional news. It's a busy time in the world of sports. Here's Brock Richardson with the Sports Chat. Brock, starting in the world of Paris sports, all the Bacha athletes, the top Bacha athletes in Canada, will be in British Columbia this weekend for the national championship. Yeah, they're playing at the uh, Richmond Oval in um, Richmond, B.C., which was one of the places for the uh, Olympic Games that's right. in 2010, so that's kind of cool. 
Um, I want to give you some players to uh, watch out for, and then I'll tell you where you can get the event. And then I have some comments on how they're streaming it. Please. Um, Lance Kreiderman, BC1 from Ontario, is a really good athlete to keep an eye out on. He is Mr. Consistent at the uh, uh, championships. He's going uh, for his second straight gold medal in the BC1 category. Uh, Newfoundland and Labrador's Lois Martin. She has had some struggles over the last little while internationally and uh, nationally as well. So I look forward to see a bounce back event from her as well. Uh, she's had some medical stuff that she's had to get sorted out. So hopefully that's on the mend and we can see her back to her normal self. Uh, BC2, Danica Lard from Montreal, Quebec is another national team member and another BC2 from Newfoundland and Labrador. Kristen Collins is also an athlete to look out for. Um, and then BC4, uh, Allison Levine, who is top five in the world, and she's number one in Canada. She is one to watch out for as she prepares for the Pan Am Games coming wow. up very soon. Yeah, busy. And, holy smokes. Go ahead, Brock. And also, let me see. Hold on one second. I got to... Uh, and then uh, Yulian Cabanu, who's also uh, part of Team Canada. So lots of good athletes to keep a part of. And here's how you can watch it. You can go to bocchacanada.ca. They have it under their streams. Unfortunately, they will not have any commentary for yesterday. And today they will have commentary for the final two days of the event. I, I will tell you with no commentary and a person with a visual impairment, the way they have the camera set up, it is very difficult uh, to discern what's going on on the court, but they're very quick with the results. So you can get the, uh, you know, the results, but maybe not necessarily be able to follow the games themselves until Saturday, Sunday. And I think that that's kind of a, uh, a sad thing to do when you have an event. This is your national championship. If you're going to commentate half the event, you probably should commentate the full event just due to the fact that there are individuals who need the commentary yeah. to follow along. If you're, if you're going to spend the resources to do half of the broadcasting, you might as well spend the resources to do all of the broadcasting. That actually circles back to a topic that you and I covered earlier in the year about a lot of amateur sport, and particularly parasport, that there needs to be a standard of quality in the way that it's broadcast. And it's it's too bad when it ends up excluding people or making it difficult for people to watch. It's super cool that it's all available online for free. Like, that's fantastic. Like, that's super cool in terms of reach. But there are some exclusionary factors you need to be mindful of. And you and I danced around this. Who should be responsible for that? Because let's be clear, broadcasting stuff is not free. It's a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. And also, I, I think to be fair about it as well, it's it's tough on the national sports organization to run the event and then say, oh, we're gonna we're gonna also Brought put this on camera. Too, yeah, you know, you you have it well broadcasted. You know, when CBC and CBC Gem runs it, the problem is it's hard for people like me to report on it and tell you what's going on when I'm looking going. I see the result, but the score doesn't always yeah. dictate the game. But doesn't I can tell, tell the you story. a game does, was 4-3, and yeah. it doesn't tell you the story. A score does not tell. It does not tell a story for sure, no. for sure. All right, Brock, well, let's uh, wish those athletes well this weekend in Richmond. Beautiful part of the country. Beautiful weekend to be out there in the greater Vancouver area. But let's jump into the world of professional sports. This was probably the biggest story in Canadian sports yesterday. Ottawa Senators forward Shane Pinto has been suspended 41 games by the NHL for, quote, 
quote, activities relating to sports wagering, i.e. he bet on games. It's also been confirmed that he did bet on some NHL games. Senators head coach DJ Smith says the team will support the 22-year-old and is 100% behind Pinto. We'll be here for him. Um, we'll get, offer him any support that he needs, and we'll welcome him back with absolute open arms. I know the players love him. I know the staff loves him. Um, the city, the organization, we'll, we'll do everything we can. He's one of ours. Uh, Brock, there is a little more journalism here, just to point out before you and I jump into a broader conversation. This is a deal that was negotiated between the NHL, the Players Association, and Pinto. He has admitted guilt. He's not going to be appealing this, and he's acknowledged that he made a mistake. But it does speak to a broader issue in sports, and it's something you really astutely raised earlier this year about the proliferation and ease of sports wagering and where that's trickling into sports. I'm not going to share every case study with you, but it has come to the forefront a couple of times here in the last year. There were a number of Detroit Lions football players in the NFL who were suspended for wagering on games. The NFL ended up reworking their sports wagering policy, but they had to go back to the table and figure it out. The, the Iowa State University Cyclones football team, they're going through a major gambling scandal right now where a lot of players were wagering on games. Shane Pinto was the first NHL player to get caught up in this. There's also some issues brambling in Europe right now in elite-level soccer. So gambling in sports has existed for a long time, Brock, but I think the speed with which it proliferated and became available and accessible to people I think caught a lot of leagues, players associations, and players themselves caught them off guard and kind of left them in the tracks without really understanding what it was that was happening around them. Two things I'll say. Number one, it's it's big of Shane Pinto to acknowledge he made a mistake and say he's not going to appeal. A lot of times when athletes get in trouble, they say, I'm going to appeal it. I'm the, I didn't do this. I'm going to appeal it. And then it gets even more murky for him to sit there and say, I, I did make a mistake. I apologize. I'm sorry. And I'm going to, I'm going to take the punishment. That's good. Secondly, I wanted to let everyone know that I heard and understood yesterday that this has been a, a, a sort of a rumbling through going back into the summer a little bit yes the story has picked up over the last you know couple of days and even onto a couple of weeks but it's not as if the nhl just said oh we, we're gonna suspend you 41 games they did do their investigation and they're obviously satisfied with uh, the suspension and what they found so it's not as if they said well we're just gonna suspend you and that's that they do do their due diligence and i think when you're an athlete and there's things you shouldn't touch and shouldn't do and obviously sports betting is one of those things or be very careful with how you do it for me i i tend to lean towards the steer clear of it like I, I, you know that's that's me and that's my mind you know when i was an athlete we steered clear of betting and and drugs and stuff even even though some were legal some were okay just steer, steer clear of it all it just makes it easier on yourself and everybody involved but yeah those are my two cents on this sort of situation definitely do not uh wager on your own sport like that should just be a given I, I don't think that should require extra education just don't bet on your own sport and yeah probably to a certain degree don't wager more generally on sports but the fact is gambling and sports have gone hand in hand for a long time including athletes playing cards on team planes and team buses and gambling amongst each other so i i, I extend empathy and understanding in these moments because of the speed by which uh the landscape has changed 
on sports wagering and the ease by which you can do it. So I extend empathy, but I think a lot of leagues are playing catch-up right here, and you're going to get some players and teams who are going to be caught up in the crossfires. Okay, Brock, let's move to the weekend. Look ahead. A busy weekend in sports. I think the place to begin, though, is the World Series. You and I have talked quite a bit about baseball over the course of the last few weeks, and it was a really enjoyable American Championship League Series. It was a really enjoyable National League Championship Series. Now you get to the World Series with the Texas Rangers and the Arizona Diamondbacks. Uh, Brock, my dad, is currently in Arizona. He lives there in the winters. Uh, He sent me an email a couple nights ago saying, hey, Dave, can you try and find me some World Series tickets? So I am a devout doting son. I will do whatever my father tells me. All the uh, face value tickets were sold out, so I went to the uh, not shady at all secondary market to try and find (laughs) my father some tickets to Game 3, Game 4, or Game 5. Brock, what do you think the cheapest ticket for Game 3, 4, or 5 of the World Series is in Phoenix, Arizona next Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday? I'm going to say the cheapest ticket is going to be around the... $400 to $500 mark. Ooh, better double that, brother. $829 for the cheapest ticket on the secondary market in Phoenix on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. Yes, wow, that's a lot of coin. And I suspect ticket. I suspect that your father will be saying, uh, no thanks. Uh, he passed. He passed on yeah. that. I called yeah. him last night. He passed on that. He said, no, nah, no thanks, Dave. Uh, but, Brock, <laughs> nonetheless, baseball is great to watch on TV and amazing to listen to on the radio. And this is a good series. I, I know that the Texas Rangers and Arizona Diamondbacks are not necessarily marquee franchises, but I think these are both really compelling teams who both showed in their league championship series they can bash the tar out of those baseball baseballs yeah they they show no fear they are according to the prognosticators they're not supposed to be here everybody's going to be playing loose you're going to see all kinds of great stuff i think you know but uh both these managers really want to do it for their team i i you know i love the texas rangers i i think i want to see bruce bochi do it again oh He's yeah the manager for the texas rangers i want to see that but I also really like the Arizona Diamondbacks who, uh, you know, really have pulled this out. And when you think about, you know, what's happened here, um, both of these records are not records in which that you would say, oh, these are both World Series teams. They, they were both wildcard teams. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's really really a compelling series. And- Brock, I'm, I'm going to pause you for a second there. You mentioned their wildcard teams. In both cases, they qualified for the postseason on the absolute last day of the regular season. Yeah, and I mean, if the Arizona Diamondbacks uh, win the World Series, they're going to be among the lowest uh, win, uh, winning percentage teams to have won the World Series yeah. with their... 83, 84 wins, whatever it was. I think it was 84. Uh, But yeah, I mean, this is something and it just shows you that baseball can be a fickle thing. And some people will say, oh, it's the way they have their, their, you know, their playoffs formatted. No, I just think teams got hot and that's what happened. I, I don't think we should change the format. I just think, you know, 
it is what it is. You're supposed to get hot in the playoffs, and that's what the Arizona Diamondbacks and Texas Rangers invariably did. The two teams represent different styles of team building, which is also very interesting. The Texas Rangers are a little bit closer to what you would call the traditional form of baseball team building, which is let's spend a whole bunch of money and sign a whole bunch of free agents and maybe develop one or two guys in-house. And the Texas Rangers have not been afraid to shed lots of dollars to bring in big-name, high-end talent. The Arizona Diamondbacks have kind of been the reverse. It's been shrewd trades and internal development. You know, they fleeced the Toronto Blue Jays when they brought in Lourdes Gurriel and Gabriel Marino. Like, the Blue Jays are kicking themselves because both those players have been major playoff performers for the Diamondbacks. But then as you look up and down the roster, this is not free agency this is development. So it's really fascinating to see two styles of team building clashing this weekend as well, which which I, I'm just really excited for this World Series, Brock. I'm just so happy that it's not the Yankees or the Red Sox or the Dodgers or the Braves. Fresh blood, and I'm all about fresh blood. Brock, we're running a little over time here. I'm giving you one more game to set up for the weekend. What is the attention of Brock Richardson when you're not spending time with the wife or the new puppy? Uh, Miami Dolphins, New England Patriots on Sunday. I want to see, can the New England Patriots repeat what they did against the Buffalo Bills? Or did the Buffalo Bills just entirely play like garbage against the Patriots? Or is it really the Bill Belichick effect? I Again, I want to see, does Tua Tunga Viola really put it to the Patriots? Or does Bill Belichick say, no, we're going to beat two AFC East teams mm-hmm. in a row? And you know where my loyalty lies because I want to see the Dolphins sort of fall back with the... Buffalo Bills, but anyway, I digress. Okay. We're going to see how this goes. I don't know that I recreationally watch the New England Patriots anymore. Brock, thank you for this. Have a great weekend. (laughs) You too. That's Brock Richardson with the sports update from the AMI Sports Desk. Yeah, the Miami Dolphins are my team, and I'm probably not watching that game on Sunday because the Patriots just suck the life out of football games. Coming up after the break, Martin Scorsese's latest film is... Facing some criticism, Laura Bain chats about Killers of the Flower Moon in the Entertainment Report. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Elizabeth Moeller is standing by with the weather reports. Elizabeth, it is so warm in southern Ontario that I wore my cargo shorts and a t-shirt into work today. I am roasting at the moment because mild, warm temperatures are expected to continue in southern Ontario this week. Aren't we lucky? There will be high temperatures more typical of September reaching the upper teens and to get this even into the 20s. Record low breaking temperatures can be expected with very warm nights. I had the window open last night. And it's not unheard of to have such mild temperatures for several days in a row at the end of October. We just have to look to October 2022, where there were three days in a row of 18 to 20 degrees Celsius. It only happens on average every 10 years or so. But the bigger story here is really how warm the nighttime has been and will be. Yeah. 
Warmest overnight temperatures records for this late in the month are at risk of being broken this week. Keep those windows open. Widespread 20 degrees readings are possible today. So keep those shorts on as a low pressure system moves north. Some places will likely hit 20 degrees. This includes Toronto, Peterborough, and Wyerton. Overnight lows last night were around five degrees Celsius above our average daytime high. And it's possible that a few locations will have their warmest nights this late in the year on record. Right now, Pearson International Airport is on pace for four consecutive days above 20 wow. degrees Celsius, which started on October 24th. But chilly air will arrive for Halloween, spooky, and maybe even some snow. So put those coats on over the costumes. Colder than normal temperatures, first week of November. So get out those boots. They're made for walking. That's the uh, weather report. Yeah, it's kind of a, a sign or a cosine function here. Some ups and downs. Uh, I will say, Elizabeth, my apartment is hot as heck Roasting. right now. Yeah, hot Roasting. as heck. The heat uh, is pumping. The air conditioning is put away. Yeah, they don't, they don't build these things to breathe. Elizabeth, thank you for this. Talk to you in a couple no minutes with day. the round table. In one minute, yeah. Laura Bain shares the entertainment report but first driverless vehicles are becoming a little more common in parts of the united states mike debusky buckles up for another edition of tech trends uber riders in phoenix arizona are now able to hail driverless taxis through the company's app waymo's nicole gable says the intention is to cut down on human mistakes on the road particularly when you're in situations with vulnerable road users like pedestrians or cyclists the waymo driver takes extra care to navigate in those complex situations uber senior vice president andrew mcdonald says he gets it if people are concerned about safety we understand some people will have questions there's always questions with new technology, but ultimately we believe that Waymo is a partner leading the way on safety, that autonomous drivers over the long term will bring a lot of safety leadership to this industry. Autonomous vehicles across all companies accounted for about 200 crashes this year out of more than 6 million total accidents. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Over to Laura Bain for the entertainment report. Laura, just before you jump into some controversy around the new Martin Scorsese film, y'all have been sweating in Halifax last couple days too. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been super warm, and uh, I spilled water on myself just before this segment, so I threw this sweater on, so it's extra toasty. <laughs> you know that ha that happens to me on occasion in this room as well. Uh, sometimes uh, the drinking and the water drops, uh, just uh, part of the game, part of the broadcasting yes. game. But Laura, I mentioned Martin Scorsese and his new film Killers of the Flower Moon that dropped last week. It is facing a little bit of I don't know if I want to call it backlash, but certainly a little bit of scrutiny or criticism. Yeah, I've, I've heard some criticisms that kind of uh, piqued my interest. I haven't seen this film yet. Uh, so it's based on a novel by the same name, and it explores uh, murders of members of the Osage Nation from Oklahoma by white settlers, which happened in the 1920s. So it's based on um, historical fact. Mm -hmm. And so Scorsese and his team uh, worked extensively with members of the Osage Nation, uh, including some descendants of those who were murdered, uh, to ensure that the film was cult culturally appropriate. But as you mentioned, there have been some criticisms, including that the film is told from uh, like a white perspective rather than an Indigenous perspective, and that it includes potentially harmful depictions of violence towards Indigenous women. 
so, you know, this just kind of has me thinking, I'm not really sure if I'm going to see the film or not, but uh, about this conversation around whether it's appropriate for filmmakers and other artists to tell stories about marginalized communities that they don't personally belong to. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Oof, I do. I acknowledge that it's a very difficult question that establishes some very fine line setting because I, Laura, in, in life, I try not to be an absolutist. I try not to be someone who puts my morality pure and ethics purely in a sense of absolutism because I always believe there's room for nuance and wiggle room. If I could respond to one of the criticisms here about some of the depictions, I, that's where I kind of start saying like, no, now you're actually looking for, not you personally, but that's where, that's where critics start looking for things to quibble with where they're like, this makes me uncomfortable. Well, yeah, it's art. Art is going to make you uncomfortable sometimes. I'm not going to. I'm not going to like lose any sleep over that. But I do think the question of who gets to tell stories does matter, especially when it's a lot of underrepresented, marginalized people who've not been given the platform to tell their story. And I think that that correction still needs to occur. Uh, progress has been too slow on that file, platforming people of color, people from indigenous community, people from the LG, LGBTQ2S plus community. I think that, that it's, it's too slow giving them those major platforms. But on the flip side, I will say that it becomes very limiting if people can only tell stories based on their life experience because sometimes perspective matters and with appropriate consultation, and it does appear that there was quite a bit of appropriate and meaningful concert consultation with the First Nations community in Oklahoma on this front, that sometimes you have to allow great storytellers, and that's what Martin Scorsese is, to tell stories. Yeah, well, I would certainly agree with you that uh, we need to problematize why more marginalized uh, communities don't have the same platform to tell their stories. Um, and that's something that needs to happen um, kind of at a level of like education and giving people opportunities um, and, you know, systemic racism yes, and things that yes. we don't have the ability to get into here. And when you do have a platform such as Scorsese, there is the opportunity to bring forward stories that need to be told. But absolutely, there's a very heavy burden of consultation. And I think not just in your pre-production, but also in your post-production, which means that you're willing to... Um, you're willing to make changes based on the feedback that you get if you get it wrong, right? And right, right. You know, in this case, we've got someone who's making a lot of money off this film, and I think that adds an extra burden of scrutiny, scrutiny say, than if you're you know, a journalist writing a story about a community you're not a part of or even writing a historical book yeah. about that I, community. But I think that's a, that's a really astute point you make there because there are a lot of different ways where storytelling occurs. And there are people, like, like you cannot just have stories coming out from individual communities from within the community. Sometimes you have to bring in that bigger picture. I, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying that voices should be erased and there shouldn't be uh, incubators and opportunities to raise more people up. But every now and, but every now and then, I, I think that maybe Scorsese ends up platforming this story in a way that wouldn't have been platformed otherwise. Yeah, again, I'll just go back to kind of problematizing why it wouldn't have otherwise been platformed. And I think it's, you know, perhaps a case of like active oppression of certain people's stories. But I agree that there is that opportunity there. Um, and we're certainly talking about uh, 
historically what happened to this community, which a lot of people, including myself, had not heard of before this film. Um, another aspect of it is I think we think about this when it comes to uh, on-camera representation. And I guess what we're sort of highlighting here is the importance of that sort of off-camera representation yeah. as well. Yeah, and if I was to sort of toot the horn of an organization like AMI, that's become sort of part of the production protocol now, is to make sure there's more people with disabilities involved in all levels of the production of content. It's, it's become a priority from top to bottom in the company, whether it be internal or external productions. So that is changing, but that also, again, requires active change. And and you're you're right. I think, I think and I hope that it's mostly settled about uh, having people... Uh, not having disabilities portraying disability on camera, or certainly people uh, not of color portraying people of color on camera. I think that there's been some progress there, and I think there's been some understanding made. But you're right that it's it's less visible when it's behind the scenes, like maybe even less so in regards to Martin Scorsese, because directors are still quite visible. But what about entire film production crews and television production crews? What do those makeups look like in terms of broader representation? Yeah, absolutely. Because like, it's all good for me to be cast as an actor portraying a character who is blind. And I'm probably going to resist certain tropes if I do that. But if I don't have the ability to actually shape the story, um, you know, I, I could sort of end up forced into a position where I'm, I'm like, um, perpetuating stereotypes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, fortunately, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, I was involved in a production where I played a blind character in a, in a, play and I was able to have some input and they actually paid me an additional fee because of my lived experience. But um, I think we kind of worry about tokenism if we are only uh, thinking yes. about on camera. Yes, absolutely. Laura, this is really well thought out. I've got to say, though, I am probably going to see this movie this weekend and I'm delighted. Scorsese is one of my favorite directors of all time. Yeah, I'll be curious to hear what you think about it. Well, well I'm hoping to do a review with somebody here. If all fails, uh, you can get the uh, two-sentence movie review from me next week. <laughs> Laura, have a great <laughs> weekend, and I'll uh, talk to you next week. Thanks, Dave. You too. That's Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report coming up after the break. Non-alcoholic beverages are growing in popularity, so Elizabeth Moeller is curious. You could design your own non-alcoholic beverage, what would it be? <laughs> Good question to get the weekend going. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's Friday, so that means you might be tempted to indulge in a frothy adult beverage. But Elizabeth Moeller, non-alcoholic beverages are on the rise. They sure are. There is growing interest and companies are having to adapt and pivot to non-alcoholic choices. And so as that market expands and companies think about what they want to do, I thought we could brew up a little something in the AMI studios. So I'm going to start with you, Ms. <laughs> so, uh, Ms. Reen, if you could create a drink, non-alcoholic drink, what would it be? What is your concoction of choice? Hmm. 
So actually, during the summer, I have this popular drink that I make that a lot of people ask for. A, I make mocktails, but a specific one that I make um, because when we have our like barbecues and everything, they love it. So that's my number one mocktail drink, and I like to experiment with things. So I kind of made it up and uh, I played around with it. So I use uh, sparkling strawberry lemonade. Oh my gosh! With Seven mm. Up. Mm. A little bit of sugar and frozen fruits, and oh. it is oh. so good. It's so good. Oh um, wow! Yeah, and the frozen Yum. fruits, perfect touch. You just yeah, when it melts, you just eat it at the end of the cup, and it's oh, so good. Man, like who needs ice when you can use frozen fruit to chill the drink down? Okay, I knew Nazreen would have a good answer there. Nazreen's our resident <laughs> non-drinker. Like that is top. <laughs> Top of the top line. Notch. Oh my gosh, uh, Ramya, what about you? If if you had to get in the lab with the pen and the pad, what's the uh, what's the drink you're trying to get off? Well, you mentioned frothy earlier, like coming into this segment, and I've been really enjoying uh, any kind of drinks with a bit of a froth to it. So I'm not talking lattes per se, but you know, even if it was orange juice, like something with the, uh, I guess the notion of pulp or just like a bit of thickness and then oh, to be able to froth that mm -hmm. has been fun so uh i mean you know all the, everyone's on a trend with lemonades right like if you go to the cne at all you're gonna find 500 different lemonades i'm down to experiment with anything in lemonade pretty much um but i'm thinking add a bit of that froth to it the consistency of drinks makes it adds a bit of touch that you don't get with just not frothing or not fizzing you know yeah, 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 I think that I think yeah. that's really I think that's really good Ooh. too. You know, Elizabeth, the thing is, to to my feeble brain, I think about a lot of great non-alcoholic beverages that already exist that aren't even necessarily a mocktail, right? But mm. what a, what a couple of breweries around Ottawa have started doing are making their own sodas. So you're getting Ooh. sort of like these cream sodas or these root beers or like um, orange sodas. So I, I know I'm not answering your question directly, but I, but I would love some sort of, you know, orange soda or grape soda mm. that maybe just adds that second or third ingredient like Nazreen was talking about. Maybe it's a sparkling yeah. water. Maybe it's sort of like a lime juice, just something to make it a little bit more complex in its taste. But I just I'm just such a fan of some of these more craft sodas that are being made yeah, by a couple yeah. of breweries around Ontario. But what about you? You posed the question. What's okay, your answer? Well, I, yeah, you, you're almost reading my mind because I have developed a drink called Green Drink. Now, it sounds like Halloween. It sounds gross, but it's not. Take lime cordial, <laughs> club soda, a little squeeze of lime and a little bit of lemon, and it's so refreshing. We we have kind of come to love it at our student public school. And it's nice because it's not too high in sugar, and it, it has that little bubble. Like, sometimes I find if I want something alcoholic, what I actually want is bubble, right? Mm. So the green drink actually takes care of the bubble, but you're... Yeah. you're um, I think you're onto something here with soda and lime because uh, adding those things together really makes for a good. But maybe I need to rethink the name because green drink sounds kind of weird. Uh, Elizabeth, you went really fast with the ingredients there. One more time. Absolutely. Club soda or plain Perrier, lime cordial, a squeeze of lime, 
and a squeeze of lemon. Yeah. And of course, lots yeah. of ice. Oh, that yeah. Good. That sounds super refreshing. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I think that's just the perfect spot to leave it. I think we all sort of brainstormed a little bit. And uh, definitely, it, it, this, this world is becoming more inclusive to people of all kinds of tastes. And it's super cool that a lot of bars have started to figure this out too, like full-blown mocktail menus. Yeah. So yeah. really, really cool to be more inclusive and allow more people uh, to enjoy a nice night on the town or on a warm day like today in Toronto, maybe a little bit of time on the patio. Nazreen, you have a lovely weekend. Elizabeth, you have a lovely weekend. Ramya, you don't get to have a lovely weekend just yet because you have to tell me what's coming up on Kelly and Ramya today at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Will do. We have our app update with John Beeler, and one of the topics is uh, Google rolling out an inclusive assistance is what they call it. We don't know what this feature is until we talk, uh, but it, this is for wheelchair users as well as low vision users. We're going to find out exactly what that is. Also, we're talking about the World Series matchup set between mm. Arizona and mm. Texas. Oh, okay. Rock Richardson's going to be coming up. Maybe he'll have a similar reaction. Also, uh, two highly anticipated memoirs are coming out, Dave. One of them is oh, celebrity memoirs, specifically. And one of them is, of course, Britney Spears. He's going to tell us more um, about these two memoirs and why they're so highly anticipated. Mm -hmm. Ramya, speaking of books, you and I mm -hmm. did a taping of the AMI audio book review yesterday. Yes, we did. I don't know when that one is going to drop, but you and Jacob this are Saturday. doing you, Oh, it's this Saturday. Quick edit Tomorrow. on that one. Okay, so what are, what are the relevant details on this one with you, myself, and Jacob Shemansky talking about success by Martin Amos? That is right. Oh, it, it's going to be because, you know, our pod's gone to one hour now, and this is one of the best reasons why having conversations uh, with people like you, Dave. I think that we had a lot to say and a lot to dig into. Uh, also, Jacob and I continue our recommendations to you. It's nothing compared to your recommendation, but we thought we'd just slip that in. So this week's pod is going to be, um, it is one for the books. Check oh, it out. Right on. AMI Audio Book Review. Find that on your favorite podcasting platform or catch it on the mighty airwaves of AMI Audio. Ramya, thank you for this. Have an awesome weekend. You too, Dave. That's Ramya Amuthan, the co-host of Kelly and Ramya. Coming your way, 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI. Coming up next... Fast TV services are growing in popularity. Think about services like Pluto, maybe a Tubi, but what makes them appealing? Greg David will offer up a little bit of insight. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. AMI has a really cool opportunity for you to be part of a live studio audience. Kelly and Ramya are taping a special episode on Monday, November the 27th. They're looking for 50 people to be part of the audience. If you live in the Toronto area, or plan to be in the Toronto area on November the 27th, you should email info at ami.ca, info at ami.ca. Space is limited, so you wanna get that email in nice and quick. I know what you're asking me, Dave, but what do I get for showing up? Well, you get to spend time with Kelly and Rumia. That should be reason enough to show up for the special taping. But you're also going to receive a Kelly and Ramya gift bag. Boom. Are you sold yet? 
You need a little more? Okay, okay, okay. Your name is also going to be entered into a draw to win one of two Apple gift cards valued at $500 each. Well, Dave, there's 50 people. That's only two. Uh, you know, I'm not all the way sold. Okay, okay. You're being a little greedy. That's all right. There's also going to be five $50 Tim Hortons gift cards. For your chance to win those great prizes, you have to be a part of the live studio audience on November the 27th. To confirm your participation, again, email info at ami.ca, info at ami.ca. So, you might still have a couple of questions here about this event. AMI communication specialist Greg David has one more piece of valuable insight. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Dave. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you, too. As you can tell, I'm full of beans, both coffee and otherwise. So, Greg, what's the big reveal that you want to share this morning about this taping on the 27th? So we have a location, which is always good when you're announcing some uh, live taping <laughs> that you want people to show up at. So on, uh, like you said, on Monday, November the 27th, we're going to be at the Great Hall in Toronto, which is the actual address is 1087 Queen Street West in Toronto. It's uh, the Queen and Ossington area. So um, oh, what uh, a wicked paid... part of town. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, there are parking lots there. There's a TTC access as well. And uh, I, you know, you've been talking about the 50 seats that we're looking to fill. We have over a dozen uh, people that have already emailed us at info at ami.ca and have locked in their seats. So if you're interested in being part of it, uh, get that email to us right away because those seats are filling fast. Tickets are going fast. Info at ami.ca, info at ami.ca. And maybe you just want to clear your schedule on November the 27th and get your butt into downtown Toronto, the beautiful West End. What a great part of town. You know, I'm someone who likes to uh, rage against the notion that Toronto is an amazing place. The West End and the West part of downtown, pretty cool. Greg, speaking of things that are pretty cool, uh, it's officially Halloween season. I, I can't get away from it. I've been trying to stem the tide for a few weeks here, but now I can't fight it anymore. So you wanted to spotlight some spooky content coming up. CB Gem, CBC Gem has debuted a new web series called The Banneking. It's about yeah. a young woman who returns to an indigenous community. Why is this one worth checking out? Yeah, this is really interesting. CBC Gem is putting out this this specific uh, content just for CBC Gem. And so this is a web series. There's six episodes of uh, 10 minutes each. So it's a quick bite of content. And it's really well written and well produced. It comes from indigenous creators, a couple of guys who grew up with their traditional indigenous stories, as well as being huge fans of horror movies and, uh, and the like. And so they sat down and came up with this idea. And so it follows this young woman, like you mentioned, named Ellen. Uh, who goes back to her Bent Creek First Nation to investigate some mysterious happenings at an abandoned residential school. And uh, she uh, it involves her connecting with her estranged family that she left behind years ago. Um, but the creators of the show have said, like, it, this is all about the horror. And uh, mm -hmm. some, some bannock that has been made, and there's something that's happened to the bannock, and it is affecting the people in this Indigenous First Nation. So it's definitely straight-up horror, while also acknowledging, of course, residential schools and the horrors behind those oh, wow. as well. So if you're looking for something a little bit different, check out the Banneking on CBC Gem.
While you're on CBC Gem, there's also the opportunity to check out a film from a couple of years ago called The Lighthouse that stars mm. uh, Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. I didn't know this. It was filmed in Nova Scotia. What I did know is that it's filmed in black and white. And what I do remember is that it's deeply, deeply unsettling. Uh, why did you want to recommend this one? Yeah, for exactly that reason, Dave. I mean, this is about a 19th century, a uh, couple of 19th century lighthouse keepers in turmoil after being marooned on remote New England outpost during a wild storm. Uh, it's directed by Robert Eggers, who also directed The Witch, which is oh. a fantastic horror movie that is also available on CBC Gem. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm going to interrupt for one second. He also, in yeah. he also made a movie last year called The Northman, which was sort of a spin on Hamlet that was a wild yes. movie. Yeah, yeah, we should talk about that sometime in the future. But The Lighthouse is creepy and claustrophobic. It's based on the real case of two Welsh lighthouse keepers in 1801, which is known under the title of the Smalls Lighthouse Tragedy. So head to your Google machines for that one after this segment. But it, the movie really explores mental health and isolation. And the last movie that I felt as uncomfortable about watching was The Shining, which is also about a story of a family, but in this case, mm -hmm. stuck in, a, in an empty hotel during the winter as the husband slowly loses his sanity uh you know originally the source material from stephen king so yeah definitely check out the lighthouse on cbc gem yeah i want to say that was 2019 that came out i remember i saw it in theaters yep. and i think i still have a knot in my chest from watching it because of like how unsettled i was and that is and like i don't mean unsettled like in a bad way it was like that's what makes it a compelling film it was yep. it made you so uncomfortable yep Yep. Yeah, exactly. And and I also wanted to mention those two projects on CBC Gem just because of the, the described video. Mm. Um, that was the other reason that I wanted to spotlight them. But yeah, I mean, for me, horror, it's all about psychological feeling now as an, as an older gentleman rather than the slasher stuff. Yeah. Well, one of the more contemporary voices or, or artists or thoughtful people in sort of the thriller horror genre is Mike Flanagan. Michael McNeely mm. did a review last week of The Fall of the House of Usher, which is currently yeah. on Netflix. But you want to go back in time a couple of years to a series that he did called The Haunting of Hill House. Why does that one still resonate with you? I had really established Mike Flanagan on the Netflix platform as the guy to be making these psychological horror projects, and uh, and I liked uh, the haunting uh, or the uh, I liked uh, the Fall of the House of Usher as much as Michael McNeely did. And uh, but the, this is a modern reimagining of the Shirley Jackson novel that follows siblings who, as children, grew up in what would go on to become the most famous haunted house in the country, the Haunting of Hill House. Mm -hmm. And now, as adults, they're all forced to get back together and go back to that house and relive some of those horrific memories of the house. Uh, like I said, this established Mike Flanagan as the go-to guy for this type of storytelling on Netflix. The cast is fantastic. The music is moody. The scares are more psychological than jump scares. And the described video is top-notch for this one. So that's why I'm recommending it. Mm. Greg, one more, and this one's in-house. It's part of the AMI yep. family, Sightseers. You've talked about it before, but it's worth a shout-out here around the Halloween season. Yeah, it really is a love letter to the region of Canada, the east coast of Canada, and all of the history there. Uh, this follows Mark Jolie and Laura Warren, who are both psychic mediums as they visit locations in the Halifax area. And the most compelling episode of that first season is New Ross Castle, where a home is being renovated. And aside from what the homeowners have reported, like tools being moved around that uh, that uh, were in one spot and, and weren't when they went back to them, and lights going on and off, which could be electrical, of course, but the production 
production crew was able to capture film of something that is truly unexplained. And even the guy that came on set to kind of debunk things didn't have an answer for what happened in that episode of a uh, new Ross castle. So check it out. Sightseers. Sightseers, which you can find, of course, on AMI Plus, amiplus.ca. Remember that you have to spell out plus, P-L-U-S. That's the home of lots of great AMI content and uh, really, really cool, slick website. Really, really, you know, Greg, I, I, I was perusing around earlier this week on AMI Plus because we had a big company meeting about it, so I yep. wanted to dive a little deeper. It is so user-friendly. It's amazing how user-friendly AMI Plus is. Yeah, it really is. It's got all the accessibility preferences in there, uh, and the video's great. Like, it's just uh, leaps and bounds uh, from uh, from the former website. We're really proud of it. Yeah, AMI Plus. Uh, definitely check that one out, amiplus.ca, if you want to check that out. Greg, only about uh, two minutes on the clock here, but okay. there are some alternatives popping up in the streaming service game that are free, or at least a little more cost-effective for people who want to get their hands on some content. Uh, generally speaking, it's referred to as fast TV. It's TV over the internet, streaming. It's free, you know, minus getting a couple ads in there. And a few of the big players in the game that you might be familiar with are companies like Pluto or Tubi. But Greg, mm -hmm. why, why are these services so appealing for people? Yeah, I mean, if you're on a budget, it makes sense. Um, fast TV's become a real option. You know, why pay for Disney Plus or Amazon Prime if you could have something like basic cable and internet to, to augment your internet uh, costs with streaming dozens of fast channels? There's just so much content out there. So really, it's the, the less of a hit on your wallet that makes it so appealing uh, right now. What about the drawbacks? I mean, the drawbacks to it are uh, non-accessible, so there is no described video. There are captions, um, but a lot of the programming is, are old television shows, old dramas and, and comedies, uh, so there isn't any described video, and so there's nothing available on the fast channels right now, um, unfortunately. And also, like you mentioned, there are commercials involved, although shorter. Uh, and the other thing is, unless you're watching something on demand on, like, a Pluto TV, it's just constant streaming, so you can't actually pause what's happening. It's just right, continually right. playing, and you kind of join it and uh, and it just it just continues to play and you kind of join it kind of you know whenever you do uh when you log on to or or join pluto tv so those are the biggest drawbacks greg literally 20 seconds on this but do you have one that you find uh preferable one that you like to use because there's a lot of options out there yeah, Pluto TV has been really interesting for me right now. I'm such a fan of CSI and crime dramas, and you literally click on the CSI button, and it just will continually play CSI. Uh, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> love so it. So I, I I love Pluto TV just for all the options that are out there. Greg, you're the best. Thank you for this. Have a great weekend. Thanks you too. That's Greg David. That's all the time there is for the show this week. Until Monday, I'm Dave Brown telling you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. It's the end of the week, so it's time to say thank you to the people who put all the bits and pieces together. Let's roll those credits, gang. Host, Dave Brown. Co-host producer, Alex Smythe. Sports reporter, Brock Richardson. Contributors, Rami Amuthan and Nisreen Abdel-Majid. Senior show producer, Andrika Delanerol. Visual producer, Bruce Beclarian. Producers, Paul Daniel, Marianne Dion Jones. Production assistant, Kingsley Juco. Director, Anastasia Spalding Stenhouse. Control room operators, Daniel Panamondo, Eliza Rocco, Parker Oxtoby. Manager of operations, Kyle Harper. Manager of live production, Paula Denis. Director of content development, Kara Nye. Vice President of Programming, John Melville. President and CEO, David Arrington. 
Give us your feedback. 1-866-509-4545. Copyright 2023. Accessible Media, Inc. NAMI Original Production. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.